Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Finua of Tafanganui Atara, where I'm recording today. Hello, Jen. How was your week? Oh, the less said about my week, the better. It was terrible on every level. I'm sorry. Um, how was your week? It was good. It was busy, I think. It's really spring, springy here. So very springy weather. So putting all my jumpers away slowly and digging out the long forgotten short sleeve shirts and mm. trying to remember that the sun is not my enemy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cute. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, what sparked joy for you this week? Uh, well, we had cheese and cracker Friday yesterday, so we just do this thing sometimes where we go and get cheese from the supermarket and then just sit around and have it for lunch on a Friday at work. And it was really nice, actually, because we asked some other members of the team to join us. It wasn't just our little crew of four troublemakers. And it was just really <laughs> nice, actually, just like a really wholesome hour, lunch hour. And yeah, it had really good vibes. And after the week that was not good, it was actually just nice to have this little downtime where we could just chill for a bit. Just to spend some time being like colleagues and friends and not just yeah project people who have to do all this stuff. And not talking about work and just doing, you know, random chats. But yeah, it was good. Um, what sparked joy for you this week? This week, my kids had their first sleepover. Mm. I mean, my daughter has done sleepovers before, always with family members. I've got a weird thing where I like just don't let my kids sleep over at people's houses unless I know them really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so they went to Nana's for a sleepover and it was my son's first time sleeping out of home. And whew, it was a really, it was really good, but also it just felt so strange to be going to bed without checking on them first and like my husband and I went to the grocery store together and bought groceries and then came home and cooked food we watched television and had ice cream and it was just really nice mm -hmm. so yeah I mean it was good I mean I'm always a little sad because I really like my kids but it was good for them and good for me and I'm very very grateful to Nana and Granddad for finally um, offering to take them both because it opens up a whole new world of possibilities. My husband was like, we could have dinner like once a month and not have to be home by a certain time. Just yeah, imagine. imagine. <laughs> and I'm like, this is like every night with Jen. She was like, want to go out? We can go out. Like, <laughs> you don't ever have to be home. No. I was so amazed at like how different the perspective is. I saw this tweet yeah, that was like... Yeah, really enjoying being single and child three in my 30s where I just do whatever I want all of the time. Like, correct. Like, literally mm -hmm. just whatever I want. It's amazing. I love it. Yeah, no, I think that was it. I think that was my biggest joy this week was having a nice dinner with my husband and just, like, kids being at Lovely. Well, this week we're reading chapters 13 to 20 through the theme of compromise. So did you have a story about compromise for us? I do. Let me get it out. A little printout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm the only millennial with a printer. Uh, okay, so I want to talk about a time before I had children back in the ice age <laughs> where my husband made a compromise for me. So right after my husband and I married, I quit my job to write full time. I actually really loved working. I especially like working in retail and hospitality. But the particular hospital job I had ended up being insurmountably stressful. 
Now, I had been on a student visa for years, which meant all the jobs I'd had prior to graduating uni were time limited. I could only work 20 hours per week. Mm -hmm. So my income had always been negligible compared to my partner's, who has a professional actual job with a professional actual organization. Um, So even at that point, when I was working full time, I still really didn't feel like I was contributing very much. And I was miserable. Like that job was not for me. So my husband is the kind of person who likes having backups of backups. So the idea of us being a single income family, even when it was just the two of us, was not easy for him. To be fair, I never intended to not have a job. In fact, I had planned to have a career. Unfortunately, my first experience working in media was so horrible that it sent me fleeing back to hospitality. Mm. (laughs) This return was meant to be a pause point, like an opportunity for me to reassess. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, except I wanted to write. I really wanted to write. I've always wanted to write. After a particularly terrible shift, I met my partner for lunch and I said, I hate this. I really want to quit so I can write. And he said, okay. Well, actually, what he said was, okay, but you have to treat it like a job. You have to set yourself hours and work those hours and you have to have a goal. What hours will you work? What does that work look like? And what is your goal? It was really great because he was willing to compromise despite his anxiety about being a sole income earner, which is a fair anxiety, especially in Sydney. But he wanted me to be willing to treat it like a real job. And at this point, I think I would have agreed to doing cartwheels five times a day if he would be okay with me quitting. Um, So honestly, this was a compromise I could 100% get behind. And besides that, I'm good at working. I really like working. I don't like working without structure or motivation or like an accomplishment that I can see, Mm. which is what I was struggling with at the cafe. And also, I like my husband. I know he was making a concession, so I really wanted to honor his wishes in that. You know, when you live with someone, when you make a life with someone, that's that's part of it Mm. is kind of figuring out how to go through it together. So we hashed out some rules. So my hours would be like weekday mornings from like nine-ish to just after lunch. The afternoons would be for everything else or anything else. I didn't really have anything planned for those. I decided I wouldn't work at home. I would take my my MacBook Air to a cafe and I would work at the cafe. So my one goal was to be able to finish a first draft. That took 16 days. It was a terrible draft, but it didn't stop. I kept writing. The next day I was back at the cafe. I started another story. I finished it. Then I started another one. It turns out that without having to compromise the rest of my time, I am actually very prolific. It was the first time in a long time I was working to please myself. I wrote until my hands ached and then I wrote some more. My first 10,000 word day happened in the second week. My first 20,000 word day happened about six months in. Everything inside of me was turned toward this glowing light of possibility. I did that for a year and I sort of fell into another job by accident. Friend from uni had a job and she gave me a referral and I ended up working there until I had a baby. But even after I got that job, I still wrote every day. I wrote daily right up until my daughter's birth. After she was born, it was the first day in like two and a half or three years that I hadn't written. Mm. And I remember being like, I should take maternity leave. Like I should give myself maternity leave, but thinking, but what if I break my streak? So it was already baked in that writing was something that I did every day. So when I think about this time, I I am really grateful for it. I think about the compromise my husband made to be able to say yes to me. I often say that he makes my life possible and he really does, but this is a concrete example of that. He made writing possible for me in a way that nobody ever had before. He treated it seriously and that made me take it seriously. Mm -hmm. I wrote, badly but prolifically and the more I wrote the better I got sometimes compromise is a sacrifice you make for others and sometimes it's a sacrifice that others make for you and sometimes it's just love dressed up in a you know tough love jacket Mm, I love that I love what you just said about he he took it seriously so then you took it seriously it's like if someone believes it's a serious possibility then you sort of can't treat it as just a throwaway thing yeah 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 and that was so much of it right like he was really like okay i will commit to this action but you have to do it as well it's not a pass it's not like you just get to dink around and watch tv all day Mm. i mean not that i ever would i'm 
just a busy person in general, but he was right. And setting those rules actually gave me so much structure and so much joy. Mm. Lovely. Oh, thanks for sharing. He's a good egg. (laughs) Uh, Would you like to do chapter summaries for us? Sure thing. So at 300 Fox Way, Mr. Grey turns up for a reading, but gets some flirting and light pickpocketing thrown in for free. Meanwhile, the gangsy finally come to consensus. They're going to explore Cave's Water again. The only problem is when they get there, it's gone. Of course, the car breaks down, stranding them until Declan arrives with his dad car to save the day with a new battery, which doesn't go over well with Ronan. When Ronan dreams next, he brings back a pair of night terrors, one of which he and Gangsy have to kill. The Gangsy then head to the barns to bury the nightmare's body, and there they discover a world of Niall Lynch's sleeping dreams, including Ronan's mother. So a lot in this mm. section. Yeah, I I had to stop actually writing marginalia down because I was just like, there is too much. I underlined so much. It was a huge section this week, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, every time I got to the end of a chapter, I'm like, oh, that must be it. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> there's more to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so much more. Definitely, it feels like the start of Act 2, right? Like everything is starting to really happen. The premise has been laid. We're really getting into the teeth of it. Yeah, all the players are introduced, are in place, you know? Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about the women of 300 Foxway. Yeah. And compromise. Because the way they're kind of resigned to let Blue make this choice that they know ultimately will lead, and like, will ultimately end badly, right? Because Gansey's going to die, and they know that. Yeah. And they're sort of just letting it, not just Mora, but everyone's kind of like, okay, Blue, you're going to do this thing. Is that a type of compromise to sit back and watch that happen? I guess so. I think it is when I'm parenting. And I think of them as sort of, like, they're they're all sort of parenting Blue in their own way. Mm. I do think that, like, from my personal perspective, sometimes I have to let my kids do things and feel and experience things that I really dearly want to protect them from or deal with the fallout of. Like, if I'm feeling really emotionally taxed out and my kid's doing something that I know is going to create a problem for them later, I'm like, oh, I just don't want to deal with it. (laughs) So I think there's a little bit of that. It is a compromise. You do have to let go of the people you love so that they can grow up, especially when you're growing them up. Yeah, and I feel also because there's three of them, right? So they're these three people who are in this thing together and they're all very close. And I I sort of think of them as like the three fates in a way because they all have a bit to play. But they're still three individuals. And when you are in something together like that, there's always going to be compromise. Like the way that Mora and Kala compromise on how they approach things, the way Persephone, like every approach is a compromise because it comes from three different perspectives. Yeah, yeah. And I like that they're all individuals too. I think that I, I love that the connection between them is really what enables them to be flexible because just Kala on her own would be so aggressive and just Persephone would be too vague and just Mora would be loving, but maybe protective in a way that didn't allow for experience, mm. I think. So the fact that the three of them are there enables them better to compromise and to sort of parent better. Yeah, it just stood out to me when they have that conversation in the hallway, Kala, more about Adam. And, you know, Kala walks mm-hmm. off and she's like, I don't deal with train wrecks. And Maura's like, it's not a train wreck if it's not off the line yet. You know, I like to call it a derailment. It just stood out to I me. Poor that... Adam saying, yeah, <laughs> I think it's a, I didn't even think I was on the tracks to begin with. And I'm like, Adam, you're okay, buddy. Bless. But yeah, I just think it's interesting that, you know, they have very different approaches. So whatever approach they choose is intrinsically a compromise between the three of them. So everything they do is like a middle ground. Yeah, they're like sort of the ultimate team that you would want doing a group project at a job because they're always going to come to like the best conclusion between the three of them Mm. because they will consider all the angles and they will talk it through and they will let the others have that sway when it's needed. Yeah. Um, I am putting Maura's uh, Art Avery Award for Awesome Parenting on the shelf for a little bit because I don't think that you should be flirting with a hitman. (laughs) That's not a really good parenting decision, Maura. 
Yeah. I'm just going to say, she's on thin ice right now. But she's living her life. That's true. <laughs> but she still has a dependent minor at home, and that's kind of uncool in my opinion. But that's, I realize that this is fiction, and I really love Mora, but I am a little bit like, mm, should we do a flirt? I don't think we should do a flirt. I love the connection, though. That's enabled, like tarot is a means of connection. We've spoken that before when we yeah, read the Raven yeah, yeah. Boys, but in this section again, we see that tarot comes out as this connection point between them. You know, they draw the Ten of Swords, and she's like, Oh, it looks a bit like you. And he's like, And this looks like you. And he points to the knife, right? And then Persephone's oh, so like, He's the King of Swords. <laughs> and it's just like such an embodiment of his personality. I just love that the tarot is used as a way of connecting all the, the characters. It's amazing yeah into it and that persephone is the one who is able to get the connection between mr gray and the king of swords like she's the yeah. one who calls that card and finds it in the deck using her perception i kind of love their whole chapter of like doing sunday tipsy party tricks <laughs> to be honest that was really fun that there was a lot of fun in this in this section with people just doing fun stuff it was nice it was nice because a lot of it was really heavy and hard. Yeah, it's just a lot of introspection from Ronan and from Adam, right? So that's always hard going. I did have a lot about Adam. I think I wanted to, to kind of ask, like, do you think that compromise inherently is something that makes everyone a little more miserable? Because in terms of Adam, he compromises so much toward this goal, this like ideal of getting out of Henrietta and and being at this Ivy League university and like becoming Gansey. So he's compromising a lot for himself. And I'm just wondering like, is it because he doesn't want to make a mistake? Is it because he can't let himself actually compromise to to ask for help? I think for Adam, the idea of making a mistake is failure, right? The only way he can get out is by emulating what he sees and what he sees as Gansey. Yeah. So he's like, this is what I need to be in order to escape. If that means I have to change everything by myself, so be about myself, so be it. Like, that is just the price I have to pay. I think for Adam, success equals misery and he can't see anything else. Like, he, if he's not unhappy, then he's not working hard enough. You know what I mean? Like, I just mm. think that's so baked into him that the idea of happiness... It's not a concept he allows for himself. And that fear that he had, thinking back to, mm. you know, when he's having that introspective moment when he's going, like, the first few mm -hmm. minutes he was approaching Gansey for, like, for the first time to say, like, I could help you with your car. And Gansey says no. And then he says, but wait, actually, I want you to teach me how to do it myself. There's no point having this car if I can't speak its language. And then, like, by the end of that car trip, they were friends. He says in the approach to Gansey that his stomach had been an, a ruin of fear. And I thought the fact that even that he was approaching Gansey is a compromise for Adam. The fact that he yes. was going to make himself yes. vulnerable in that moment to talk to Gansey, mm -hmm. to, like, reveal himself for what he is, which is a mechanic, right? So this is a massive compromise. Yeah, it said, and then when, what was the word? He confessed that he worked at a mechanic's yeah. confession. And when Gansey says, no he immediately goes into the spiral it's like of course he says he says no i'm worthless i'm all these things which you just know is the stuff that has he's internalized from his father it's just horrible how he just believes the worst about himself has never seen evidence to the contrary doesn't believe that his natural self is worthwhile and that's why he's like well i have to change everything about myself and if that makes me miserable so be it i'm just a sad emoji all the time right now adam needs a hug there's that one scene, it's in my tangential marginalia, when he's just like, so they've arrived at Cabe's water, Cabe's water's not there, and the scene is just like, Adam rested his forehead on his knees, curled his arms behind his head. He felt, and then it goes on, and he talks about how the, the status of the car being broken down personally, perfectly encapsulated how he felt. It was not really dead, yeah. just broken. I'm like, oh, Adam, you're just so tired and in so much pain all of the time. 
And he's also being messed around by this forest, which keeps getting sapped of energy. I, we don't know that yet, but that's what's happening, is that Caveswater's being drained. I, like, he's just... He's, he doesn't know the nature of the bargain that he's made, which I think is the other thing. Like, he compromised without knowing the terms, mm. which I think would have a real effect on you. Yeah. Oh, But yeah, that was a tricky one. I think the other clear compromise is Declan. So Gansey calls Declan to bring them a battery, knowing that this would upset Ronan. Ronan just has to has no choice but to accept this, right? So that is a compromise in and yeah. of itself. So now everyone's unhappy because Declan's turning up and Declan is Declan. And you've got Declan and Gansey both putting on a front for each other, I guess, trying to out-dad yeah. each other. And, like, Declan is trying to not cause a scene. Like, he looks at Ronan, he wanders off, and then he just comes back and he yanks open the door because he can't not cause a scene. Like, he can't let that go. Yeah. And I love that he just talks around the issue when everyone in the car already knows what the issue is, but no one says it out loud. Oh, Declan. It's so good. I know. And he, like, I honestly think he did try. Ronan was not without fault in that moment. He definitely did some picking and prodding and poking. And I was just like, oh my goodness, let it go, child. But yeah. The bit that really stood out to me there is that there's that line that says, page 124, his gaze followed his brother's leg to where it rested on top of Adam's and his expression tightened. So what is happening in that moment? Like, Declan is looking into this car. He's seeing Ronan sleeping in the back. And then he's just like, he notes. Well, I think Declan knows that Ronan is not into lamps. No, but like Ronan doesn't even know this (laughs) yet, right? So I find that interesting. I just find that interesting. I mean, you get the vibe that Adam, like, you get the vibe that Adam and Declan don't really like each other. Like, later on, every interaction they have is so loaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that it's because Adam will just let Ronan be. Yeah, I mean, I love that about him. I thought that was really interesting and a point of connection in this section, but yeah. Especially in the moment in the barns later where he said, I, I can't fight his demons for him, or I can't kill his demons Well, for yeah, because you've got this very clear contrast between everyone. So you've got Blue, who's just like, oh, that's helpful. That's helpful! Like, she's yelling at Ronan mm-hmm. when he's having a moment. You've got Gansey, who tries to, like, intervene and stop it. And you've got Adam, who yeah. just goes... Yeah, you just got to let him run. You know, you just got to let it peter out. And I wonder, I think Adam just recognizes enough of that emotion to see the value of it burning out, to just let it run its course. Yeah, I have a theory that Adam knows Ronan better than he knows Gansey, but he thinks he knows Gansey better than he knows Ronan. And I think something I was very conscious of in this section is like they know each other really well. Both Adam and Ronan make observations about each other all the time. And it's so... So astute, the dream that Ronan has about the mask, right? Like, that is everything. Mm. Like, his subconscious sees what Adam is doing, this mask that he's wearing, this persona that he's trying to adopt, and the way that that will eventually just, like, kill him. Destroy him. Yeah. Yeah. I love that we saw the bond between Ronan and Gansey a bit more in this. Like, you really get to understand their closeness and the way that, how they got there. Yeah. I think there's just complete acceptance. Like, Gansey is just trying to hold on to someone that he really loves, like a brother. Um, I mean, they are like brothers in that, like, in that fraternal sense of, like, being part of a family. Even Blue sort of mentions that, you know, outside of 300 Foxway, it's everyone else. But when the boys are there, they're not everyone else anymore. So, like, they've been folded into her family. Mm. And I don't think everyone in 300 Fox, so I would consider them family, but to Blue they are. And mm-hmm. having them in her house is, like, right for her because that's her family. Like, the connection she has is, like, there's family and everyone else. She doesn't really compromise on that, which is a whole other thing. But I, I think that there is something about the way that Gansey holds the space for Ronan, the Ronan that he used to be and the Ronan that he has become, and then is able to reframe that when Ronan is finally honest about what happened in the in the past year, which was 
like that conversation always wallops me like I love it so much yeah which was a compromise for Rosen to let Gansey believe Mm. this thing about him because he had to keep this promise to his dad right yeah I'm really glad they had that conversation because it really kills me on page 134 when Gansey has that thing where he's like don't think of this Ronan remember the other one and I'm not into that I think you should meet people where they are and accept them for who they are in the moment you can't just like be with someone because you want to remember them for how they are like Ronan is as he is like you can't just hold on to the idea that he's going to be the person he was before. I just think it does a disservice to the person in front of you. So I'm glad that he gets to the point where at the end of that section, when they have that fight on page 139 as well, he says, you know, a look into who Ronan really had been the entire time he had known him because yes, this is who Ronan has yeah. always been. There wasn't a before and an after. This is an always thing. I'm really glad they get there. I love it too. I mean, nothing brings you closer than having to murder a nightmare together, but oh, horrible. Noah's no help. Can't believe he just noped on out of it. Um, I love that Noah is the biggest coward and he's the actual ghost. <laughs> it's just such a nice touch. Yeah, so the nightmare itself and the fact that Gansey, who is like the most gentle and like will not step on a bug type person ever, went in with a box cutter to help Ronan kill this thing. Like, it, awful. Just awful. It was so... I mean, the more we get into these books, the more I start to really feel their personalities. And Gansy is not the kind of person who would happily punch someone holding a gun at you, like, right? Mm. So this was a big deal for him to have to kill this night terror. And I just felt it the whole time. Well, maybe it's easier to accept because he knows it's a dream thing. Like, if it was a real creature, like, if it was something that was in the real world, quote unquote, I wonder if he would have been able to do it. But because there's that little distance where he knows it's something that's come out of Rodan's head, it gives him a little bit of, I don't know, absolve him a little bit well i mean he he wouldn't have let what happened to welk happen to welk in the last book no like he wouldn't have no exactly done what adam did yeah i think that the compromise that gansey makes is that he will help ronan um and i think you're right that that it's about the dream things rather than a real person Mm. like an alive person maybe it's sentience like you know you'll eat a hamburger but you won't fair trade i don't know yeah I do love how he's always trying to get Blue's approval and how she just doesn't give it, but she does in some ways. Like I'm on Bluesy Watch again and I thought one of the best moments of just as a tangent of Bluesy Watch was um when she was, you know, talking about how his wanting was so much and she like he looked like his eyes were like the dreaming pool at Caveswater and how she understood fundamentally this thing about him, but she knew that he would never be able to explain it to her mother because she can't even explain it to her mother, but she yeah. got it. They get each other. I think there was a very obvious point of connection in that section because you've got Blue talking about her connection with the trees and then on two pages later you've got Gansey talking about Glendower and that's what she recognises. She knows she says about the trees it felt in Cave's water it felt an awful lot like a hint of something more and then she notes about Gansey it was his something more. So there's just this way they understand each other because they're longing in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought it was like peak coupley behaviour that she gives him her yoghurt. She's like yeah it's got the fruit in it because he's like oh this is the best part. They just share this yoga pot like that is so coupley there are some things that i think are just great moments of compatibility between people and things like that are one of those like i love that this just works for them it's so silly that it's a yogurt cup and she only likes the yogurt and he likes the fruit bits but like nothing goes to waste and it's perfect because they each want the different thing of the same package and it's great just makes my heart how they say that every couple should have someone who likes pickles and someone who doesn't so that you can balance it out what about somebody who's ambivalent about pickles? Because I like them okay, but I wouldn't, like, choose one. 
Well, does Simon like them? I think he does. And actually, you know what? To be fair, our oldest really likes pickles. Like, she will just eat them as a snack. So you can give them to her. But I used to as a kid. Mm. Yeah. I'll eat them if... I Like, I like them on burgers. I'll have them on burgers. I think they're delicious. Yeah, see, but... I pick them off. So it's always good to have other people oh. around who want them. <laughs> well, you can give your pickles to me because I'll always eat them. I think they're lovely on a burger. There is some... Th- like, Adam trying to be part of the group when he's just so tired is definitely a compromise, right? Like, on page 117, Adam, for his part, was not wild, but he did not did his best not to appear unwild so as not to ruin it for the others. I think the fact that he's even still trying to go along on these, like, wild goose chases is, like, a massive compromise. Yeah. Like, he is just... He's struggling to get by. He's working all these jobs. He's trying to do his schoolwork. Like, this kid, he is... He is hanging by a thread. He really is. I just want him to be able to accept help. Gansey going to the barns is a compromise as well, hey? I just thought of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gansey doesn't want to. He is a... Uh, I, I love that there was this little foreshadowing of him needing legal help at some point in the future when he was drinking that awful tea at 300 Fox Way. Mm-hmm. Because in the fourth book, he does need legal help. Mm. He calls upon the family lawyer. But this also is a legal thing, right? Where Ronan can't go to the barns. And, and Gansey's like, I want it on the record that you shouldn't come with us. If there were anywhere else to do this, we would. Mm. Yeah, the tea. And he's like, just my dreams? He's like, what, force feed it to Ronan, this terrible tea? He won't go in there. He's he's like, I don't think he's been inside Foxway since the first time, has he? Like, he's allergic to it. No. Oh, maybe after the fight, like at the end of the last book. Oh, yeah, when they were all sitting, before Neve scarpered off mm. to do her thing. Yeah, after Welk, the Welk incident, when Gansey broke his thumb. Lol. Yeah. <laughs> There was a moment where I, I want to talk about Blue at the Barnes because it's it's just incredible. She's got this great way with Ronan where she doesn't like to put up with his nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yet at times she does. Like she does put up with it. And that sort of creates this groundwork for a connection between them that we then will see later in, in Blue Lily Lily Blue. I, like I think their friendship is so great once it starts to get going. They're both so prickly and mm. annoyed at everything. And I, I love a friendship that's like tall and small, both grumpy. And they are that. But yeah, the, the way that she doesn't let him get away with it, but she also accepts it when she needs to in order to hold space for him to feel the things he needs to feel is really beautiful. It's a really good moment of connection between them at the barns. Yeah, I just love that little softness you see of Ronan at the barns. Like, oh, the mouse. The, yeah, like, like the whole scene with the the mouse and him remembering him and Matthew doing it and it just being so soft but also just the fact that he's got chainsaw with him and she's a bit nervous and they cock their heads in the same way I just love this thing and he Mm -hmm. says you know she's getting heavy this dream of his right and I'm like all of his dreams are getting heavy that's part of the problem like he it's just everything weighs on him so much but as Adam points out you know he couldn't or wouldn't but I think couldn't really express his emotions he doesn't know how yeah i wrote on the margins of that section use your words it was very carry on for me yeah well i mean there's that bit also where he's in the barns just before he starts wrecking the place where he talks about he didn't know how to hold these feelings inside him of himself and reminded me of simon and how he's like i don't know how to feel like how do i feel like all these things how do i make room to feel all these things all these stunted boys it is hard to be a person and it's hard to be a teenager i will just say that that's for sure Especially a magical teenager. While we're talking about Ronan, there's that bit where Mm. Adam is remembering the first time he saw Gansey, right? And he's saying that Gansey's best friend was Ronan, blah, blah, blah. And it was that friendship that made him think that Gansey was cruel because they were always, like, exchanging smirks and whatever. And it made me think, like, 
is Ronan cruel? Would we describe Ronan as cruel? Because I think he's truthful and I don't necessarily think to, it's cruel to be truthful, but I can see why other people would think that. I don't think he's cruel, but he definitely has the capacity for it because he's not nice to Ashley when he meets her the first time in the last book, right? Like he deliberately says a hurtful thing and he's trying to get to Declan, but he, he does it in such a way that it affects Ashley as well. And Gansey calls him on it. So that's like a tenet of Gansey's standard is that you shouldn't be cruel. And Ronan listens to Gansey when he won't listen to anyone else and will follow him. So I think that he tries not to be. But he also is so full of this poisonous unhappiness that yeah. he, he sometimes is un unkind without intending cruelty. Cruelty speaks to me of intention, right? I think being mean and unkind is different to being cruel. I think being cruel is like actively trying to destroy someone. Like actively. Yeah, or it's it's saying things in a way that, that you know will be hurtful but won't actually fix anything. Like there's no clearing of the air in cruelty. It's just digging your hooks in. I feel like I know when I'm about to say something that is cruel and I can stop myself. But sometimes I say things that are unkind without meaning to. I think cruelty has intention. It's wanting to hurt someone else. Cruelty is weaponized, right? Like it's, yeah. a, it's a weapon. And I do think Ronan wields the truth as a weapon, but I don't think you could use truthfulness. As, it, the cr truth is sometimes cruel, but I don't think that's cruelty. Just because you don't want to hear it doesn't make it cruelty. But is it actually truth? And is it something that needs to be said? Or is it something that is an observation that is designed to be said in order to hurt someone? Well, I guess this is where I agree with Ronan. If it's true, it doesn't matter. Like, if it's the truthful thing, if it hurts someone, that is not my problem. <laughs> I don't know. I would go to pretty great lengths not to hurt someone. If I felt like I didn't need to, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have said that thing to Ashley in The Raven Boys. I wouldn't have said that. I, I wouldn't have said that because I don't think that it's her fault that Declan is the way he is, you know? Well, I don't perceive that as cruel. I think that's information she needs and she can make a decision. She's a big girl. She can use that information to dump Declan right on the spot. Like now she knows. True, but why say it in front of everyone? Why not pull her aside and privately say, you look, you know that he's like this, right? Because that would have been, I think, like the way to do it. That wouldn't be cruel. But doing it in a way that's designed to humiliate her in front of other oh, people. Oh, see, I didn't think it humiliated her. I think it was like humiliating Declan. I think those are different things. I feel like I would be humiliated if that would if that were me. I feel like I would be humiliated, if, especially if I didn't know. But I wouldn't be mad at Ronan. I'd be mad at Declan. Like, he's the one humiliating me. It's not Ronan. Declan's the one who did the wrong thing. He's the one who wears the weight of it. He should have the responsibility, but yeah. I have been told multiple times that I am the mean friend, so I guess I'm just like <laughs> Ronan in that, that I don't actually care. I don't think you're mean. I think you're truthful. And I think you're you're direct, which is different than mean. I don't think you would delight in someone being unhappy. Depends if I like the person or not. <laughs> but yeah, I think even with someone that I don't like, I would still be worried about whether or not they were okay with that information. I don't want to hurt people. Even if I really don't like them, I don't want to hurt them. Sometimes I want them to stop talking to me or arguing points that I don't agree with because it's exhausting, but I don't want to make them feel bad. Oh yeah, no. So look, I'm more like Gansey and this is that I like, I really do believe politeness is a, a virtue and something that we should all strive to. But this is why people get away with bad behavior. Don't you think you just allow people to think everything's all right if you're always kind and polite to them? Sometimes people need to know that they're not okay. And if they're never hurt, if you're always protecting people's feelings, they never learn. Mm, I can still be polite, but protect my boundaries. I do it with my kids all the time. Yeah, your boundaries, but you're not teaching that person to be better for other people. I don't know. Like, I just, yeah, I guess I see. Yeah. This is, yeah, you're Gansey and I'm Ronan, so that's fine. <laughs> 
Yeah. I don't know. I'll have to think on that a little bit. I'm, I'm much better now, but I still like really aim for like, we're going to talk about this and I'm going to explain why this isn't acceptable. And Like I just, I do a lot of parenting. So I think about myself in terms of parenting. Like if I do something wrong, I'm like, okay, I need to think about this. Like how would I tell my kids? How would I get my kids through this? And that's how I solve a lot of my problems. Is I like put myself in the baby gen. And yeah, I always want to be kind to my kids. So I'm always like, that was unacceptable, but here's what we do next. And I think I would just do that for everybody because I do that all the time. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with being direct. And I don't think that Ronan is cruel. But I will say that, looping back to discussion of Adam, when you are not part of a group, inside jokes can feel alienating. Yep. And I think that Adam is just super sensitive to that. As a person who is very much like Adam in that way, I definitely feel that like when other people have good friends, I'm like, even though I'm not like jealous, but I'm like a little bit like, oh, I'm outside of that. Oh, I'm so sad that I'm outside of that. Like you want to be part of it because it seems good, even if it's not really yours. And it's one of the harder things about growing up has been like, oh, my friends are going to have other amazing friendships. And like, it's not ever going to be just me. And thank goodness, because I could not be just one person for anyone. I really struggle with that. Like not experiencing it, but being on the other side of it, because I have been accused of being clicky with people before because I am quite insular and the people that I'm friends with, I'm friends with and the people that I'm not, I'm not. And I'm not going at pains to include people into various groups. And I find it really frustrating when people ask me to explain things that, that is particular to a particular group. So, you know, if I yeah. am with one friend and they're like, oh, what's that about? About another friend. I'm like, it doesn't matter. That is not your business. Focus <laughs> on our friendship. Don't focus on that friendship. <laughs> Whereas I'm like a friendship group anthropologist where I'm like, explain the dynamics exactly between these two yeah. people. I want to know exactly. Like uh, after Meredith's birthday party, I'm like, tell me who everyone was and how they know and each I'm other. Like, and I'm like, I don't know. Intel. I don't know these people. <laughs> and I don't care. Like, so I'm like, well, I can figure it out with context clues. I love figuring out how people know each other, what their, what their thing is. I love finding out what makes people tick. I love that you are more like focused on your friendships I think that's a really valuable skill I'm very distractible so <laughs> I just yeah I guess I just never feel left out because I'm like mm, I've got myself that's all I need like everyone else is an inconvenience <laughs> yeah 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 for sure that's a good way to be mm. to know that you're mm. secure in yourself is good <laughs> is it can be a tricky thing when you're like not what's that like reaching out for community and connection but you're like you you know when you need to go out and do things with people I'm out all the time you can recognize it's very that. annoying yeah um, I love the little references. I felt like there was little references. I might have just imagined this one. But on page 103, Gansey says to Blue, do you eat men and all the men in the family? Which I kind of loved. And it reminded me of like Lady Lazarus by Sylvia Plath. You know how that poem ends with I eat men like air. So it just really reminded me yeah. of that. And then you've got the grey man quoting the wanderer at Kella when she wants like a poem. And he does it in Old mm -hmm. English as well, which was an inspiration for um, in The Lord of the Rings. The the poem that Theoden quotes just before the Battle of Helm's Deep is a, was inspired by the Wanderer. So I just really loved that little oh, intertextualness. Wow. Oh, that's great. I didn't realize that. He quotes it on page 109. He says, where has gone the steed? Where has gone the youth? Where has gone the giver of treasure? The poem from Lord of the Rings is like, where now the horse and rider? Where now the horn that was blowing? Where is the helmet and the holbrook and the bright hair flowing? So you can like, once you know, you can recognize the, the similarity in them, which I love. Man, I love that. That's great. I should have Googled that poem because I thought of it as I was, I think I was listening to the audiobook and I'm like, oh, I need to look that up. And then I didn't. So thank you for looking it up. That's great knowledge. Hmm. It's because I watch the extended editions. <laughs> I'll have to get those. I really want to watch it with my daughter. She's a chapter and a half into The Hobbit. And I've just, I think I'm just going to put the audiobook on in the car and see if we can't get through it that way. 
Um, can I just say for one little mm-hmm. second that I love Gansey laughing in the kitchen at Blue's response. Mm. What did all the grandmothers die of? Oh, my mom said meddling. And then Gansey completely forgot that they were being secretive and let out a tremendous laugh. It was a powerful thing, that laugh. He only did it once, but his eyes remained shaped like it. Just love that so much. I love that he just forgot himself and was delighted by the the humor of that answer. Yeah. It just made my heart so happy. And she's like, oh, no. Think of your already existing boyfriend who's sad in the other room. Yeah. Adam and Blue are not good together and he likes her and wants her and they're just not suited. And I love that Ronan is just like, oh, yawn. Gansy's looking at this lampshade and and she's looking at him and like, oh, boring. (laughs) I've got other things to think about. I've got no time for lampshades. Like, okay, Ronan. Bless. What a euphemism. Oh, so good. <laughs> Ronan was impartial to lamps or whatever that line is. So good. Ronan didn't care for lamps. So funny. And I love that, like, it's Gansy wearing jeans and a t shirt that makes Blue, like, Bleh. so funny. He's finally dressed like a normal person. This boy, honestly, wear jeans more. These polo shirts are off putting. And he's like, I'm so slovenly. And she's like, Yeah, that's what I'm blushing about. Yeah. And I mean, like, her and Gansy, they just, like, get on effortlessly right so they're always like whispering and like making Mm. plans together and the car's tooling and they're looking at a map and she just doesn't seek adam out in the same way like they just yeah it just doesn't work it's because adam takes effort and gansy doesn't yeah exactly which is why you see that compatibility with ronan and adam already right because they sort of just understand each other like they're not getting upset about outbursts or anything the way that others are they're not asking for explanations the way that others are they sort of just meet each other where they are i think it was very telling that gansy has this moment before they have to deal with the night terror where he's sitting in the cabir and he's feeling really sorry for himself where was it page 132 gansy instead gave himself over to feeling sorry for himself that he should have so many friends and yet feel so very alone he felt it fell to them to comfort them but never the other way around like he really does feel quite alone because he is always trying to smooth and help and and do the right thing and 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 really provide support and structure for people who don't have that and then he you know berates himself in the next sentence going like oh that you spoiled thing you should feel so sad about this like why are you even wasting time thinking about it but he is giving a lot i wrote in the margins that pain is pain like your privilege Mm. does not lessen the pain that you feel you can only feel pain within the the scope of your knowledge right so that doesn't lessen your experience like If you feel crappy, you're allowed to feel crappy even if you have a lot of privilege. Absolutely. And I think that this is a really good moment to just acknowledge that, like, you can have all of the creature comforts in the world but still be unhappy. And you can have all of the opportunity and still be miserable. And, like, sometimes it's just how it is. You just aren't able to feel joy at at life. And that's just a fact. It's just a fact. Happiness and unhappiness isn't, like, a, a moral reward, I guess. No, which is something Adam hasn't learnt yet. But also, like, Gansey then carries that with him back into Monmouth because, you know, he sees Ronan standing there and he has this Mm. moment where he's like, I don't know my friends at all. And it's, like, a real problem for him. Like, he wants... He seeks that connection. He he loves his friends. He feels connected to his friends. But then he's like, I don't know these people because they're all changing. Yeah. I just want to flag that moment where he he feels like he doesn't know anyone. Because I think that's a really important moment. And I want to hold that in my mind specifically for Henry when we get to book four. Mm. Because Henry like courts him and is like, I've been trying to get your attention for years because I think we're very much the same. And there's that like we 
we're very similar. We, we should know one another. And I think that that's something that like Gansey really needed. Because mm. you're right. You were saying before that Ronan can't be who he used to be. And he never will be. Like he'll become someone different. But Gansey's always like going to grieve that friend who was, who's been forever changed in this really traumatic mm. event, you know? But he's also, he, you know, he also deserves to have some measure of like relief and, and comfort. And I think that that comes with uh, Ronan's like having to deal with their that night terror. I think that that actually is quite cathartic for both of them, as awful as it was. Like Gansey's able to sort of go, right, you've been carrying this around. Yeah. No wonder you don't sleep, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like, this is the thing that you you are giving to me. You are trusting me with this. So this is something that he's able to like then fold into his knowledge of Ronan. And he doesn't have to worry so much anymore, which is great. Yeah, I think it's very important for them. Good on you, Ronan, for being vulnerable. I appreciate it. This throwaway line that Ronan has when they're driving up to the barns and he's not quite believing that it's real, page 144, and he says, you know, surely he would wake and find himself again exiled in Monmouth Manufacturing on the, on the backseat of his car or lying on the floor besides Adam's bed at St. Agnes. Yeah, just throw it out there. Like, you've just been hanging mm. out at Adam's and, like, sleeping next to Adam's bed. What are you doing, Ronan? I caught that too, and I was like, oh. Because I think that's where he goes when he's had too much to drink. Mm. I think that Adam would let him in, but Gansey really disapproves of excess. Yeah. That's my guess. But also, like, I could see him wanting to just go and be with Adam. Not knowing why, but wanting to be with somebody who really gets him and understands him and is willing let to him be. get in a shopping trolley and yeah. coast down a parking lot with him or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I want to talk a little bit about Blue making the connection between the sleeping animals and Ronan's mom. Mm. And I think it really could have only been Blue who made that connection. Yeah. I'm glad that she was there for that. It's just one thing that really stuck with me is that Blue is the one who followed him into the sitting room when the other two stayed back to clean up the mess he yeah, made. I thought that was such an interesting section when they're in the barns. And it starts out as a, as a bit of a game mm. where Ronan's like, oh, you know, the toaster is a dream toaster. And they're like, what else is dreamt? He's like, I've never made an inventory. And then people start pulling things apart. And, you know, it's the microwave. It's this, yeah. it's this. And then Ronan is just like opening and slamming doors just for the sake of it because he's getting more and more agitated the longer he's there. Yeah. But I also think there's something in that where something starts as a joke but it's not a joke because it's your life and now other people are in it yeah. and they just think it's a fun game but it's not a fun game for you because this is your lived reality and you can't express that so you just become really angry because I've certainly been in that situation yeah something that you grow up with is, is normal but it's not to anyone else and they keep joking and joking about it and you just become more and more wound up and you don't know why you know like I feel like that's what's happening yeah the people taking joy in something that you took for granted and that now you can recognize for being something completely different mm. yeah I can think of like 10 different things from my own life my own childhood and even early adulthood that immediately like fit right into mm. that paradigm for sure it's just a lot of feelings <laughs> a lot of feelings and his fear that adam's gonna put the mask on that was another thing that really stood out to me that he didn't want that to happen in reality and not knowing if the mask acts the same way or if it's just the one in his head how right do you test it how do you know there's no way of knowing his his father is gone and all those questions are just unanswered forever that's the real legacy of grief is that you have so many unknowable things when a life is cut short. Gosh, yeah. I don't know, man. That's just a lot. I really feel for him. Yeah, it's a rough time. I love that we're getting Ronan's perspectives, though. I love how much he loves the barns. And I love that Blue in the back seat is, like, full of wonder. And that Gansey is just remembering that, like, you used to smell like your house smells. House smells are such a big deal, aren't they? Like, yeah, I just, oh, it kills me because, like, I just, I love that line and call down the hawk when Adam first sees him and he says to him, you smell like home. Like, I just think of this scene mm. where Gansey's like, you used to smell like this all the time. And I just, it really gets to me, <laughs> the smells. Yeah. But also, like, Blue just being like, you grew up here, you know? And he 
is so overcome with emotion yeah. that he can't be sincere about it because it hurts too much. Yeah, I put that as my in-depth. I really wanted to go into that because I know what that feeling yeah. is like. Did you have anything else for connection or compromise? Uh, I think the last connection I really wanted to point out, the one that I really loved was Gansey opening himself to Adam. Like, he waited until Adam approached him, mm. but then immediately made him welcome. Like, I want you to teach me, if you can, how to work on this car myself. I want to be able to speak its language. There's no point having this car if I can't speak its language. And also, speaking of languages, you school me in Latin. So there's, like, this really complex thing of, like, deferring to his ability and intelligence asking for a favor so that like he's beholden to adam which kind of puts adam in the position of power mm. and then also like folding in this compliment which i thought was just brilliant and it's such a good way of connecting it's like observation i see you i know who you are mm -hmm. this is a thing you're really good at it's the absolute opposite of what adam was thinking about himself like he can smell the worthlessness on mm. me it's just completely the reverse. Gansey's gone and said like, you can do all these things that I can't. Can you show me? Which is such a beautiful and affirming thing. So I just really love that moment of connection yeah. that Gansey was able to offer. I think that he's really just a kind person and I, I just really love that. I love that he's always looking for what makes people go. It's just really good. But yeah, I think that was it. I wrote down half the book, so I'm very unreliable in terms of <laughs> what marginalia to, to bring up. Did you have anything, any other tangential or... The only other the thing I had was I just thought the connection between Gansey and the Camaro was really stark in this section. We had lots of moments of him just being mm. in the car and him talking about how much he loves the car and wanting to live in the car. So we yeah. got a lot of him in this car and like the bond they have, which... Not letting the, the nightmare into the yeah, car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like not allowing it. Yeah, which is just interesting to note. Yeah, it's good foreshadowing exactly. because the car is going to uh, possibly meet an end, I think. <laughs> Did you want to do your in-depth marginalia then? Yeah, okay. So we were just talking about the barns, mm -hmm. um, and that's where my in-depth takes place. So on page 148, after a moment, Blue said, Did you really grow up here, Ronan? In this barn? You know exactly what I mean. He started to answer, but pain welled up, sudden and shocking. The only way he could get the sentiment out was by drowning the words with acid. It came out sounding like he hated the place, like he couldn't wait to get away. Mocking and cruel, he said, Yes, this was my castle. Wow, she replied, as if he hadn't been sarcastic. So I think it relates to the theme in that Ronan is having this conversation and he, he's trying to answer. He really wants to answer, but he just can't. Like, the pain is too much. So the compromise is that he says something kind of awful. I think he's seeking a connection, right? He wants to be part of the group, but he can't yet speak from the scar because it's still a wound. So he makes another wound. So that was kind of my hypothesis about, like, why he's doing that. Not just because it hurts to think about it in a way that's, like, honest, but he actually can't think about it because it still bleeds. And I wanted to say that it calls back to the bit where Adam observes that Ronan can't express his emotions word which is in page 121 where adam says uh, ronan lynch wouldn't or couldn't express himself with words so every emotion had to be spelled out in some other way like a fire a fist a bottle mm. it's like he can't translate for himself in the right way which makes also the puzzle box the the translation box that he dreamed up a little more interesting like it sort of adds this this weight to the idea that he can, he's able to dream up a translation box with a language that he doesn't really know but he knows it enough that it's in his mind so he knows his feelings but he just really can't translate mm. them and so i think the way I would say that I want to use going forward is with another observation. There's no right way to grieve, but I think Blue is being really generous with Ronan by asking him these questions. Mm. She's approaching him and his life with wonder, and she's not letting him really wound her. 
It's like she sees past it. It's a compromise. She's letting him talk that way, but she doesn't take it personally. Um, and it creates a little connection. And I think that that's a really good way to, to try with people who are hurting and maybe lashing out is to just try and look past it and let the connection happen. Yeah, it's very generous of her. I mean, she knows herself. She's having a bit of an identity wobble, but it's not enough to like make her think that she needs to be talked to in a rude way. Yeah, I think, yeah, for Ronan, you know, the Barnes is just so... It's not just the loss of the Barnes. It's the loss of, you know, when he talks about the Lynch family, because they're not the Lynch family anymore. They're the brothers Lynch, right? Like, he's lost his dad. He's lost his mm. mother. All of that grief is tied up in this place. It's not just the place. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Um. Just as a, a little bit of... I know that we, we approached the text as sacred, but I do want to say that um steve otter wrote the barns because she dreamed them and when she was younger i think that this is how it goes but when she was younger whenever she had a nightmare she would write down the nightmare and then she wouldn't have mm. it again and she dreamt the barns and so she gave it to all of us and so she doesn't dream about it anymore because once you write it down for her it's it's not something she dreams about again so when i had a class with her i did say thank you for the barns and she said you're welcome but i just want to say that like i love that we get it because we all get to experience yeah, it yeah and it's a lovely place it really is mm. uh so what was your in-depth marginalia so mine is on page 100 and it's when they're all in the kitchen while well, gansey blue and mora in the kitchen and gansey is talking to mora about going back to caveswater for the first time since the weird goings on at the end of the raven boys and the quote is mm. i was going to say this place must have rules everything involved in energy and spirit has rules we just don't always know them so it looks unpredictable to us but it's really just because we're idiots this is more talking about caves water i think it relates to our mm. themes because compromise it's like going back to caves water is kind of a compromise and common sense like they know it's probably dangerous but it's also the only option they have like that is where you know gansey says i'm mm. looking for a king on a ley line and this is a magical forest on a ley line like you have to go back and it's connection because they yeah. feel so connected to caves water they all have their own little link to it and then of course adam literally is connected to caves water so <laughs> this quote just really stood out to me because I think this is just a really good way to look at life and it's the way I look at life a lot of the time is when I'm going to a new place and I'm like this is chaotic I don't know what is happening here or there's a situation that I'm faced with there's something I don't understand and it's like you just don't know the rules yet once you know the rules you'll yeah. be fine and once I know the rules nine times out of ten I then break the rules but it's important for me to know what I'm operating within in the first instance before I go mm -hmm. off the rails. Like it's really important just to understand the parameters of the situation that you're working within. So I think this is just really smart for Mora to go like, we just don't always know them. It's not that this is a terrible situation or that this is an unpredictable situation or whatever. You just don't know the rules of what you're working with. So going forward, I think it's just yeah. really important to keep that in mind. Like there's a way through everything, even terrible things. You just have to find it. You just, just need to know the rules and then you can figure out how to play the game. Yeah. So yeah, I just loved it. I love that. I often, that's how I approach things too. What are the secret rules? What do I need to figure out? And then once you know them, you can always navigate pretty close to how you're supposed to act. But no, I definitely have not been diagnosed with autism. Mm. I don't think that's an autism <laughs> thing. I think that's just a com that's a Slytherin thing. That's like a common sense thing. You need to know the rules to break the rules. Like to manipulate the system, you need to know how the system works. This is true. For me, it's all about surviving. Like how do I get through this in the least embarrassing, humiliating, compromising Aww. way? Yeah, yeah. It's so like, how, what you know, like I'm really good at small talk and mirroring because that's the only way to survive when you literally feel like you're inferior to everyone, which I did for a really long time. Um, now I've got a lot fewer cares about that. Because you're amazing. Like I'm much less self-deprecating, I think. Like I really do think I am good at what I do, whatever that is. But yeah, 
there are a lot of secret rules in life and especially in social situations and i think that that maps really well from caves water onto like life yeah. in general hmm. who would you like to spotlight this week i am gonna spotlight adam because life is hard and as ronan pointed out last section yeah. he has fracture lies all over it all over him and like as someone who has hanging on by a thread I really just want to give a shout out to Adam because, man, like everything is hard sometimes. And I see you, if this is you as well, we can get through it. It's only three more months and then it's summer holidays here. So that's all we need to do, people. Yes. Carry on. Um, Who would you like to spotlight? I would like to spotlight Gansey and his tremendous laugh hmm. and his caged anxiety and his fear and his love. I know we joke about Dadsy a lot. Like, I love the concept of Dadsy, but I really do feel like he takes a lot of responsibility for providing guidance and structure for his friends that don't have parents to do that. And that is a big job for a teenager. But I also love that he he lets himself have a little moment of sadness and then he gets right on with it. But he's also willing, like, he's completely able to have these joyful moments with Blue in the kitchen, stealing the fruit out of the bottom of her yogurt and then laughing at what is probably not actually a mm. joke, <laughs> but is actually really funny. So yeah, just a lot of a lot of feelings for Gansey this week. Oh, um, I love that. But it was very, it was almost Ronan. I almost picked Ronan because Ronan's also having a hard time. So yeah. <sighs> oh well. Well, next week we'll be reading chapters twenty one through twenty seven through the theme of reality. Mm. Ooh, so that'll be fun. Yeah, what is real? Who knows? Reality is nothing. It's subjective. It's a, a no, I don't know. You know what? I'll let you get into the metaphysical because that's way more your arena. <laughs> Postmodernism time. My favorite. Yes, I got as far as Foucault and I'm like, this guy's good. I'll just stick with him. And then the rest of it, I was like, what? No. Mm-mm. no I idea. found an essay I wrote in a university the other day, like when I was going through my stuff. And I'm like, this is really good. What is this? And I'm like, oh, this is, I wrote this. I have no recollection of any of this, but it was about postmodernism. Because, like, I love writing about postmodernism because, like, literally anything can mean anything. It's great. Yes. Make it up as you go. That's great. And <laughs> this is a meaning making podcast. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, well. I love it. Well, thank you so much for potting today. I know that you have a headache and I really appreciate you turning up anyway. No. And I hope you feel thank better. Thank you. Apologies if I was less articulate than I'd like to be, but. No, you were amazing Aww. as always. I don't know how you do it. If I if I had had that much of a headache, I would probably be potting from my bed. So you're a superstar. No, thank, thank you. you. I just don't want to miss it. It's the highlight of my week. I know. I never want to miss it mm. either. Well, we'll see you next week. All right. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginally Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginally Pod on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com. 